Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a writer whose work has appeared in The New York Times, The LA Times, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, and more. She is the author of the new book, You Play the Girl, on Playboy Bunnies, Stepford Wives, Train Wrecks, and Other Mixed Messages. Hello and welcome, Karina Chocano. Hi. Thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on, I've worked on some books and it feels great when they're done. Yeah, it really does. And I find that the further you get into it, the more, the, the last stages are among the most tedious They are stages. In, a, in their own way. You know, unless you're really into semicolons. Yeah. Which maybe you are. <laughs> Um, how, how long, I know some of the book is stuff that had been, it's changed around versions of things that had appeared in periodicals and stuff. How long have you been working on the material that appears in this book? Um, it's hard to say exactly, but it's been bouncing around in my head for a really long time. And, um, when I first started thinking about writing it, I, I did a lot of research and then I ended up saying like, well, I should probably just use this. And I started to write the essays until I felt confident that it would work as a book. It's yeah. sort of it was a long process in that way, but then once I um, really started working on it in earnest, I think it was about two years. Okay, that's a nice way to work towards it. You almost get to play the trick for yourself that you're not biting off the whole chunk. You can get to, get to do it in pieces. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'd assume when I first heard about the book that you were coming at this, that you professionally were coming from like more of an academic background, but you are at least partially a film reviewer by trade. I I was a film critic um for several years um but I, I wouldn't consider it like my main focus it's just um what i was doing when i came up with the idea mm -hmm. okay you found reviewing films or at least uh, an element of it depressing a little bit i mean it, i think at the time um I, well i always liken it to being like kind of a lab rat like you're consuming quantities of something that probably no Humans should actually consume. Right. If the best Very way, the best way to ruin a passion is to do it professionally, because right. nobody actually wants to play tennis fifteen hours a day. Right. But that's what you have to do if you want to be Roger Federer. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't just that for me. I think it was um, a little bit um, what attracted me to movies and what attracted me to writing and what attracted me to stories. Um, it, it wasn't always compatible with the sort of daily reviewing job only because you know um it's it's if for one thing you're not necessarily writing about what you're interested in you're writing about what's out that week um your time is and your interests are constrained in that you know it's a practical normal thing i mean i, I don't know that it could be any other way but you are sort of beholden to a release schedule and um and then of course you know movies are an interesting thing because there, you know, on the one hand, you have like big studio tentpole releases, and they they stick to certain formulas, and they are, you know, be, they're, they're, 
their existence is more driven by like um corporate you know needs or whatever and then you have um films that are more made by artists and um movie reviewers i think are in a funny place where they're sort of treating everything the same and it's not necessarily the same no of course they're made for wildly different reasons <clears throat> and and with wild because of the different budgets different expectations of what they need to do to perform and yet I feel like movies, we obviously are living in a golden age of television. I don't think anybody's saying that we're living in a golden age of film, but I still feel maybe I'm, maybe I've missed the culture and it's moved past what I think, but that there is a sort of religious thing that's attached to movies, like the act of sitting in a movie theater in the dark. It's a, it's a deep immersive emotional experience. I still feel like as a culture, we're more apt to compare ourselves to movies, to refer to movies for analogies for our lives, you know? So they're like simultaneously these very, very cynical projects, but at the same time they have a deep place in in they, they 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 like go to our heart yeah absolutely i mean i think that exists still and i mean one of the things that i felt at the time and look i was a movie reviewer a long time ago now so i think things i don't know where they've gone you know if i was doing that job today i don't think i'd be saying the same thing necessarily but one of the things that people would say is like oh you know you want to since you can watch anything you want at home you want to go to the theater for the big spectacle movie and i felt like Actually, I really like to go to the theater for the really small, intimate movie. Like, that's when I really feel a real connection to characters. Like, one that, you know, just pops into my mind from that time when I was doing this was um, the movie, um, now I'm spacing on the name, but it was Once. Was it Once? Once was a film, I the, believe. The music, it was like a about musicians. Okay. I, I, oh, you know, people have told me that was good. It's great. Okay. But, like... Watching that, that was like when you just said a sort of religious experience, like that's one that I remember just being like completely yeah. spellbound and having a sort of religious experience for a film that was just about two people falling in love and then not being together and singing songs. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there was nothing spectacular about it. It was actually very small and human scaled. And to see something like that in a theater is really, sure. I feel very powerful, much more for me personally, than tanks exploding because I don't know how many more tanks exploding I can ever watch. But I was I never into it. I'm I was I'm, I'm so sick of seeing the world saved. I would pay mm-hmm. I would pay money for a superhero movie where they actually lose and Iron Man <laughs> yeah. just dies and well huh, the bad like, guys. Oh, I well, tried. Roll the credits. Yeah, they're 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 done for. Yeah. Um. So. I do feel like movies have meaning, and I can think of a handful of movies in the last 10 or 15 years that I felt like really like spoke to me as a person. It would seem that, at least in part, your book is arguing that there would be a lot more for me as a male viewer in Hollywood movies and even non-Hollywood movies than there might be for yourself or, or other women. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. that's that's basically the argument. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the title of the book is a reference to a quote from from Isla Fisher, right, which I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll paraphrase. She basically says uh, the guy gets to be this character and he's got this set of circumstances and he's got these specific obstacles and he's got a backstory and that's what the guy plays. And then you play the girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I look, I I know what she's talking about. It's not necessarily something that would have naturally occurred to me, but it, it is true. Very often it does seem like in the same way that um old people function in movies 
as they're just there to be some sort of like mirror that the protagonist can look into. They're not actually supposed to have needs and quirks of their own. Right. Well, in the in the kind of movie that we're talking about, a sort of formula, you know, a formula specific studio mainstream movie. Like I think. Uh, maybe it's just the development process and it's just the process that everything goes through. Um, I think that that's been traditionally the idea that there's, you know, that everybody cares about the protagonist and everybody else is um, a sort of ancillary and supportive um, character for him to play off of. And, um, And that main character tends to be, you know, young, male, white, whatever, middle class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are movies that are exceptions to this. I mean, there are plenty of women who star in movies and are the sole star of movies, and their character development, therefore, comes ahead of their boyfriend or husband, right? Um, yeah, <clears throat> there are. But, I mean, th- you know, there have been a lot of studies that show that actually the numbers are still, I wouldn't say a lot, you know, the numbers are very, very uh, small compared to male protagonists, and they actually haven't gone up since the early 90s. Um, We're in a real kind of stasis with that. Yeah, what is the name of the test that somebody... Oh, the Bechdel test? The Bechdel test, Mm -hmm. right, which which is what the number of times women have... Basically, one of the things... The number of times women have a conversation with other women Mm -hmm. when they're not talking about the dude. Right, exactly. And very like, few movies actually like, pass that the, test. Does the movie have two female characters in it? <laughs> Do they ever talk to each other alone? Right. And is it ever about anything other than the dude? Right. And yes, very few pass it. <laughs> so few pass it that I think like, I don't know, I think in Sweden they've started rating films for the, you know, for how sexist they are too. Um, because there's this, yeah, there's just this thing that exists where the women just don't have any, uh, you know, character development or life of their own outside of the protagonist. How, maybe you think the answer to this is obvious, maybe it is, how did we get here? I tend to blame always corporate culture (laughs) for everything. I think that it, in some ways, it's like, it's it's a combination of things, but it's, it's, I don't believe that it's like, um, that you can blame specific people or that it's you know that it's intentional a lot of the time but I think that we all you know live in a big system that works and as you know you know like you you work in media it moves fast like you're just churning stuff out and when you have um, a system where all the decisions both creative and business and financial are being made by a very hegemonic group you know what's hegemonic mean yeah (laughs) Just like people who are um, the same, you okay. know, uh-huh. just one dominant group yeah. that are all similar to each other. Mm-hmm. That's a point of view that's going to be expressed. And, you know, we do weirdly live in a culture where I, I do think we we put a lot of stock into like, well, you're a man, so you feel like this and you're a woman and you feel like that or you're, you know, straight or gay. And I, I, I personally do feel like it would be we're forgetting that, you know, especially in great movies that aren't so corporate we you know we empathize and identify with anybody it just doesn't have to be someone that doesn't always have to be someone that looks like you right okay no of course all right i want to talk to you about the whole enforced gender role thing but but first if business drives entertainment and entertainment uh, business does drive entertainment aren't they just going where the dollars are you know tide doesn't 
think that a video of somebody opening toys on YouTube is entertainment, but if enough people want to watch another human being unboxing toys, Tide's going to throw their ad in front of it. If women are not being served, especially in this day and age, now I understand when there's four studios that are run by four men, how this is going to happen, but nowadays with so many outlets... How are women not demanding to see three-dimensional female characters well, they, and, and getting them? They are, and they are getting them. And the, the unboxing in YouTube is, is actually a great example because it's the whole chicken and the egg thing. I mean, there used to be a time when the studios could say, audiences don't want this. and um, But oftentimes, even the numbers wouldn't bear it out. I mean, an example from, you know, say 10 years ago was like a Sex in the City movie. Whatever you think of it, if you're going to go by box office, it was a big success. But they would often follow the successes by saying, like, oh, that was a fluke. But we kind of have that fluke reaction every single time. Bridesmaids, Wonder Woman, whatever. It's always like... Isn't Paul Feig kind of making that a thing now? I mean, Ghost, the new Ghostbusters was terrible, but that's not that's not because women I liked it. Uh, okay, well... And I have to say that my seven-year-old and her best friend mm-hmm. were so into it. My so my five year old uh, prefers the eighties version. Really? And I'm I'm backing him. Oh but, well, mine was a f- really scared of the eighties version. Like it gave uh, okay. her nightmares. It was too scary. But she also she wa- she you know she walked out of the theater in yeah. July or whenever it was and said, "I want to be her for Halloween." Mm-hmm. And she was like, "When can we buy the costume?" Mm-hmm. And um, played the character, you know, um, with her friend. And yeah. that's something that like a l- little girls don't often get to do that's true but i feel like judd apatow and then you know paul feig is taking it and running with it are create i hate to call it a genre because that's like saying black exploitation was a genre because black people were playing the roles but they are saying there are obviously women who are talented that audiences respond to that can open a movie and they can tell stories that are not um you know they're not playing the house bunny Mm-hmm. So isn't isn't it just happening? Isn't that just part um, of the steady diet? I don't feel like that's treated as like what do they call it in the movie business? Like a like a a non repeating phenomenon. Anything that uh-huh. happens that doesn't fit their idea of what uh-huh. should happen, they just go, oh, that was a fluke. Right. right. I mean, I don't think people regard Kristen Wiig being in a successful movie as a fluke anymore. Uh, no, I don't think so. But um, it's not, it's not really. I mean, it's just such a combination of things. It's not just about numbers. It's about point of view. It's about um, you know, like you say, I you know, I think like Paul Feig, it does amazing films, but um, but you still don't have a lot of um, female points of view. Um, and it's so it's not about like putting someone in a role or even saying like, oh, I recognize that she's human and I will let her act as a human. It's 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 also just like, I mean, what is the point of storytelling? It's about expressing what it's like to be you. And if we can't watch that from people who aren't um, only white men, for, for instance, um, then nobody gets to sort of put themselves in the shoes of whoever that other person is. So, I mean, I was listening to um, a podcast on the way here about um, the new Gillian Robespierre movie. Um, I don't know who that is. She made a movie called Obvious Child, and then she just made a movie called Landline. It's about the, you know, small independent movies about the 90s. But um, just, you know, Edie Falco was talking about being able to, um, you know... express the character the way that she that she felt the character and 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 I think it's just important to hear you know 
other voices. Like, it's not just about what someone allows you to represent, but it's a, it's about opening it opening it up so that people can express themselves. Is that a realistic hope? The I don't want to. I hate to just do the reflexive <laughs> anti-American thing, but American audiences don't. Show, uh, uh, countries all over the world watch movies from other countries. America does not. America seems to want a TGI Friday's entree in cinematic uh-huh. form. Maybe it's realistic to hope that they would want uh, uh, cheesy two-dimensional men and women, uh-huh. white men and white women. Uh-huh. But and as the uh, Culture, the the demographically we become more Hispanic, maybe even Hispanic men and Hispanic women. Mm-hmm. But I don't think people, America does not so, seem to be showing even signs of developing a taste for seeing people that don't look like themselves in motion pictures. Well, <clears throat> I don't know though. I mean, I let feel me ask like, you to move the mic a little bit oh, more. Pretty fair. Sorry, yeah. I feel like um, you mentioned the unboxing videos and mm-hmm. Tide wanting to put the <laughs> commercial. Yeah. Tide would have never, no ad agency would have said, let's have a commercial where we just see these hands and they open a box you know no one mm-hmm. would think that's a good idea and They're, as a parent i know you know what i'm talking uh, about of course i do and yeah. there's no you know there's nobody who would say i have this great idea let's do this in fact it, it's the opposite people are like why does anyone watch this and then as you watch 10 of them you know so it's something that just spontaneously occurred and i think you could say the same thing happened with is happening with television all this interesting storytelling is going onto television and it's wildly diverse and um, it is. You're right. And it's got lots of crazy, you know, very individual, very specific characters. And I think the movies are actually suffering from not letting go of their vice grip on what people want to see. You know, people really are moving toward online platforms and um, television. And we're seeing I think that's what's sort of cool. Like um, now is that. You really are seeing an explosion of like all kinds of creative expression and um, it is changing, but it's not changing in terms of like it's not changing at the top in terms of or at least not very quickly in terms of, you know, I mean, like if Patty Jenkins hadn't done well with Wonder Woman, you know, it would have been another decade. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think these things always need to come from the bottom. You know, I'm thinking of in the music industry, there was a thing where there's divisions of major labels back when there were still major labels that Mm -hmm. mattered at all. And there'd be the rock and there'd be the pop and there'd be the hip hop. And it wasn't too long before there were people of color in charge of the hip hop division, but there was always one boss on top of them that was mm-hmm. just in head uh, the head of the label. Mm-hmm. And very frequently, somebody would make it to the top of the rock department, and then they'd be very successful, and they'd get promoted. And it was a big deal when L.A. Reid was was the guy who they were like, "You are so successful with the 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 hip hop division that we're just going to put you in charge of the whole label." And that was the first like black dude that ran a, a record label creatively. It, it it has to come from there has to be such a demand it, it's not going to happen because the the old you know lame white guy wants to make a change it's mm-hmm. going to be because they just see that that's where the dollars and cents are yes although you know i mean there's a lot of things there are a lot of things that are happening in hollywood right now like um initiatives and stuff like for instance um to combat um what's it called implicit bias Implicit bias. Okay, what's that? So implicit bias is like, you know, you work here and, you know, at your level there's 
three, four other people that are a lot like you, and then a few people come in and interview for a job, and you just feel more comfortable with the one that's most like you. Sure. And you make and you have sort of assumptions that you're that aren't even conscious. Like you're not a bad person. You don't think bad things about people, but you just assume things. Right. Well, it's like that guy in the who writes the editorial that got made fun of the other day because he's got a friend that doesn't know what Pomodoro is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of shit. <laughs> that you, we start talking about Pomodoro. Exactly. We both we both know we're talking about spaghetti sauce, <laughs> and we're and we're good. But somebody else doesn't know, and we, we don't we don't hate that person for not knowing what Pomodoro uh-huh, is, uh-huh. but we we feel a little alien from them. Right. right. Well, that was the point he was making. Right. Yeah. That that. that that his friend was intimidated by seeing the word Pomodoro. <laughs> yes. And then he made the assumption... Who wasn't the first time they saw it, you know? <laughs> right. And then made the assumption that she would be more comfortable eating Mexican food. I know. Which is another very strange assumption. So yeah. there is a lot... So, you know, that's that's basically implicit bias. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't want to be all... <laughs> but there's, you know, you, you kind of... We do live and work in a system that has worked a certain way for a certain amount of time. So... It, I understand that a lot of people will say, like, oh, well, women don't want these jobs. I mean, that's been something that's come up a lot lately. You know, a couple of years ago, I think Colin Trevorrow, had, there was a big stink because on Twitter he said, I think women don't want to direct big tent poles, and everybody reacted. Yeah, that's untrue. Because it's untrue, but it's like if the whole system is really geared toward kind of opening the doors for one set of people and really shutting them in the face of another set of people it just it's you know it's why people say like you have to work harder right right every the people who are who are hiring for those jobs they sort of without realizing it see a, a mental silhouette of the person who's going to be helming their motion yeah. picture and that's that's it's a masculine frame that they see running around yelling at people uh, and well, saying cut and whatever it's funny too that you say that because that's one of the things that people are talking about a lot now that, like, why is the idea of directing a film, like, there's this whole, like, military, you know, idea of how it should be run, and the guy that's running around yelling at people. But when you talk to people who are on, like, female-run sets right now, um, one of the biggest things that people talk about is, like, it's such a supportive set. And, you know, this is, like, it is artistic expression. You know, it is about, like, being able to, like, explore, (laughs) you know, avenues of expression and and your feelings and like what it feels like to do this or that i mean even in a movie where stuff is blowing up it's still kind of about that so like the idea of an environment that's creative and and open um is why is that seen as a negative and that's something that really has been coming up a lot i think uh, as more women are talking about directing because the other thing is there was for a long time a real um a real kind of um what's the word prohibition against talking about this subject Mm -hmm. well right it's hard enough to keep your seat at the table in any in in hollywood without making waves about the general state of the of the industry Exactly. Um, I'm talking to Karina Chocano. Your book is called You Play the Girl on Playboy Bunnies, Stepford Wives, Trainwrecks, and Other Mixed Messages. I wanted to talk to you about gender roles. It seems like um, it, one of the inciting incidents for this book is your daughter probably is no longer obsessed with Sleeping Beauty, but yeah, was for was, was for a mm-hmm. while. Maybe I misunderstand what, what you're getting at there, but... Um, 
I have a, a son and from the time he's been able to form and express thoughts, he has been like one of the most sexist people I have ever met in my entire life. And before I had a child, I completely towed the line of you give one kid a, a, a army guy and you give a girl a Barbie doll and that gives them the message. I did not need to give my son any message whatsoever. Quite the contrary. My wife and I are constantly trying to get him to believe that girls can like Star Wars and boys can like, you know, whatever the hell they want to like. So do you disagree with that? Do you feel like society puts gender roles on children? Um, a lot of people say what you're saying, and I've certainly seen it. Like when my daughter turned two and a half or whatever, she just put on a pr princess dress and mm -hmm. dressed exclusively in princess dresses for like two years. Right. Um, <clears throat> but... I think there are a lot of things to that. First of all, that's a phase that doesn't last very long. And, like, you know, toddlers are not the most subtle thinkers. No. They're not that sophisticated. So, and that's a time in life when you're one of the things that it, that you are learning about your identity is, I'm a boy. What does that mean? I'm a girl. What does that mean? I, I believe that you really are looking, that it's impossible to keep all the stuff. You know, we live in a very media-saturated society. And we, um, as people, kind of reenact a lot of the stuff we see also you know like the girl at starbucks it looks like the barista looks like kim kardashian all the time you know so like kids are seeing that and they're saying okay that's a girl that's what i am mm -hmm. this is you know or the stories that they're watching okay the, all the movies that are aimed at me and it is true are all about princesses. Right, but i'm guessing because I, I i know uh, moms who mm -hmm. desperately did not want to raise little princesses mm -hmm. and Sure enough, their kid turned two and a half and she's running around singing Frozen mm -hmm. and, and wearing, I mean, don't you feel like you obviously didn't model that kind of behavior for your daughter? I'm guessing you, you quite the contrary, tried to do the opposite. I don't have any interest in auto, yeah. in automobiles. I didn't drive a car until I was 27. I didn't make my son go vroom, vroom the first sure. time I handed him something with wheels. No, but I, I agree. And I think that, um, yeah, you do, you, they do naturally gravitate to that because it's part of figuring out who they are, you know, and thinking this is what girls like and this is this is for girls or this is for boys. Um, but they also grow out of that pretty quickly. Like, that's something people always say what you're saying, but that's done by the age of, like, mm, six. Okay, well, I'm at, five, I'm at five and a half, and it's going strong. It's going strong. Well, my, my daughter stopped wearing, not only stopped wearing princess dresses, but stopped really wearing dresses and skirts as often. Um and the, the girls at least go through a tomboy phase. And a big part of that, I think, is because a huge message in the culture, and believe me, they get it, is girl stuff is dumb, girl stuff is babyish, girl stuff is marginal. And so at that, when you start getting into whatever that, you know, I'll be all Freudian, but like when you get into that latency phase or whatever, and you, that sort of starting to go into like a preteen, you know, um, where they're just interested in doing stuff and more interested in like science and nature and activities, whatever, art, you know, it, it becomes very constraining for girls. And I think for girls are sort of not validated. And then boys are consistently told that girls are stupid and babyish and marginal and less important that they are, than they are. When? I don't recall being told that. Well, you're not told that directly, but, but everything is, everything that is girlish is dumb. Like what? I don't know. My Little Pony princesses. Yeah, those things are pretty dumb. But My Little Pony is actually, well, remember the bronies? My Little Pony is genius. Uh, the, the bronies <laughs> don't prove anything good about anything. Well, My Little Pony is an amazing, actually, 
amazing show. I my, my son has watched a couple episodes. I don't recall any huge takeaways. Really? Yeah. It's kind of like, well, what's cool about it is that it's sort of this whole fantasy world. Um, it, it is like this universe. Um, so it's very sort of modeled after. Um, I know the, the creator, and she's like a total kind of, um, you know, fantasy person and she modeled like she created a lot or she worked on a lot of those the personalities of the ponies and everything came from her imagination from being a kid playing with the dolls um and the sort of world she created this fantasy world she created so you know whatever it's it's deep yeah i would love to to talk to her i want to interview every single i want to know the (laughs) asshole who made paw patrol i want to know what the hell he was doing i haven't seen paw patrol oh count yourself lucky yeah i'd rather watch frozen yeah you know, for even Frozen is really interesting. I mean, I'm not saying that these things are like you can't watch them. I'm just saying, you know, pay attention to what you're being told. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I guess I'm more quibbling with the degree to which I feel like it's like hammered home to kids. I know that kids are are, are getting messages. It kind of seems to me more like, look, there is a um, – so I'm on this other radio show where there's lots of, you know, dick and fart jokes. Mm-hmm. And there used to be – there's a guy who's like this uh, um, Australian uh, semi-literate skateboarder guy. And then there's me. And then there used to be this like really nerdy computer guy. And we would find certain things that were so incredibly stupid. They were like the verbal equivalent of like making mud patties. And we would all find them funny. And I would say, God, there's something sort of interesting about we're like three wildly different men. And there is some like essential male id that we share that this is not where at least two out of the three of us want to live permanently, but we are all, like every man finds this kind of shit funny. Yeah. And maybe that is the stuff that is. But the... you don't think girls think farts are funny? There are women who listen little, to the show. Maybe, also little girls. I mean, oh, of kids. course, of course. Yeah. Well, then they're right. Farts are hysterical. Yeah. There's not a human being who's ever lived. If Jesus was a real walking, right. talking human being, he laughed at he laughed at farts. But like, maybe we develop that. That is our id. That is is you know, if you think of us as like layers of onions, when we're like a tiny little core, you are that dumb dude. And maybe there's maybe little girls at somewhere in their id have this like princess thing that's kind of fun but then you build layers on top of that and that's not where you actually permanently live and that's not necessarily your truest self it's just like the child inside of you and maybe yes. that's maybe that's natural and maybe there's nothing wrong well, with that because then you do go through the tomboy phase and you do become not a gender stereotype you become an individual right well i would say i mean i think you're right that like um but, but i would look at it i look at it from I, I, I think what you're saying is true, but I see it from the opposite end, which is that your men are allowed to like continue to make dick and fart jokes because they don't have to worry about being a lady or about being accepted or about being criticized or about being excluded or judged or even, you know, beaten up or whatever, you know, in the same way. Like there is, there are lots of prohibitions around women's behavior and it is really policed in a lot of ways you know like um women get a lot of shit online for saying anything kind of um there's a lot of sort of shut up and go away or like Mm -hmm. even sort of violent (coughs) you know threats and things just um in response to someone voicing an opinion i feel like it's been shown that a lot of the policing on what women say online though is by other women Mm, i would disagree (coughs) okay I interviewed another guy for this show who I, I think said that. It's been a while. No, there, I mean, I'm talking about, like, 
I'm talking about like threats on Twitter. And, sure. Okay. You know, yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thing. You know, Gamergate st- style stuff. Um, like, oh, you have an opinion about even about you know Ghostbusters, and we're gonna like the response. Yeah, that was is, disgusting. The Ghostbusters is, thing is was disgusting. It's very, and it's not commensurate. It's not like I disagree with your artistic assessment of this film. It's like die, you know, yes. or worse. And so I think that that's so. What you're saying is yes. I think women are. I think. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Women are um, kind of inhibited by certain expectations in society. Like, the, I think it is harder for um, women learn to be sort of um, more careful. I think that's true. I also think that that is probably on the verge of radical change. I'm on the I, I dabble in uh, stand-up comedy here in LA, and and if that if that's the front lines of of humor and the comedic sensibility of the world, women are very very comfortable making fart jokes and menstruation jokes and stuff like that. And I think that that is well on its way to going mainstream, and I think it's going to become passe almost it, it, within ten years. I but I'm not really just talking about being um, gross or whatever. And that's, you know, and I, it seems like that that's something that people have been talking about for a while. It's not really about that. I think it's just about, like, um, I, th- I you know, I think it's just about being able to um, live in a way that feels... You know that you're just free. You can be to, your. You can, you, can, be you, you can express your full self. Yeah, right. and I think that girls are really told. You know, look. It, I mean, you're told how to be by like every magazine and every commercial and every. You know, it just really is an, an intense kind of like this is how you need to look and this is how you need to sound and mm-hmm. this is how you need to act and this is what you shouldn't say. You know. So how do you get women to stop buying? I mean, you've written for Elle and Vogue, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I, I used to date someone who worked at Elle. I mean, it's 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 disgusting. I, I haven't checked it out in, in in years, but she talked about get seeing um, a picture of a model and the, for for some you know that they're going to use in the magazine, and the, the model was gorgeous. She was just like the top one percentile of human beings on the planet, and the picture was just marked up all over the place with airbrush this, mm-hmm. trim trim that off. So. Uh, it, a, why are you participating in that? And B, how do you get girls to stop buying things that are poisoning their own minds? Well, I mean, all of this is very complicated. But like, look, like back in the seventies, when these magazines, or even you know earlier, like when the first women's magazines came into existence, um, was in the like late. 1800s or something and they were really about teaching middle class women to be ladies and here is here are the clothes here are the here's the makeup here are the manners here is this famous lady in her beautiful house um and over the those those magazines were traditionally run by men like everything was um and they were beholden mostly to advertisers like everything is and they were really about selling ads it in the, with the exception of maybe like Helen Gurley Brown at Cosmopolitan, whenever she was doing that in the 60s, I guess, um, women's magazines weren't really helmed by women until like the 70s. And actually, one of them, Ladies Home Journal, there was like a sit in from a feminist group that like demanded it, took over and said, stop writing these stories about how to, I can't remember, like what they were like, no more, you know, do's and don'ts and more like how to, talk to your son about Vietnam or whatever 
And um, <clears throat> and actually, as a result of that, they got their first female editor-in-chief, and then they never had another male editor-in-chief. So these things have changed. And you're right, there is an, in, there is an inherent contradiction in that, like, these things that are made for women, quote-unquote, have always been very advertiser-driven. And they've always been sort of like, this is what the ladies are going to be interested in. But within that, they create a space for female voices. So actually, I don't, I've never been inside, like, a photo meeting at Elle. I mean, I'm a freelance writer. But I think that the the writing that, you know, that, that is included in these magazines is fantastic, and important and like you know one of the main voices in this election was teen vogue and people will like make fun of it and it's like there's some great writing so um it's traditionally been a space like even numbers in magazines are very bad for women you know there's many more male reviewers many more male critics many more male writers um you know these the you can look at the vita numbers and they're not that great either so you know, to have a place where you can write or where it's, you know, traditionally women have been able to write more is also important. But, yeah, I mean, look, the whole thing is super complicated. <laughs> yeah. I just know I see Cosmo at the checkout, and it's every single month one of the cover stories is, are you having sex right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, I, I don't think there's ever been an issue of Cosmo I've seen that did not have that somewhere yeah. in the cover. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, Flashdance, also another seminal moment in your life, or a mm-hmm. seminal summer in your life, mm-hmm. it sounds like. what I, I've, I've never seen, it's one of the few 80s movies I've missed. Uh-huh. Um, what is it that it was so captivating to you, and what do you think uh, makes it so uh, critical to the story that you're telling in your book? Well, I mean, it's funny because th- this is... Um, Part of this is like it's not that I think it's such a great movie. Like, no, I understand. It's an incredibly silly movie, right? But, but she's um, a steel worker by day, dancer by <laughs> yeah. night. Yeah, right. Yeah, just another Pittsburgh girl. Yeah, and um, she, but what's interesting to me about it is that I had never seen uh, a story. I'd never seen a movie where the 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 main character was a girl, and she and none of the stuff that girls are usually like hampered by. Um, in the world was working against her like she basically she's able to be like she goes to her steel working job she's like supposed she's like 19 years old okay Mm -hmm. everyone else there is like 40 and a guy and she just packs her lunch pail she packs her lunch pail and she's and they're like hey you know like no one sexually harasses her no one makes a comment no one like does anything and like it's just like dude that doesn't just doesn't even happen in an office you know, like right. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. There. Nobody tells her to smile more. Right. Nobody tells her to smile more. And then um, she 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 lives by herself with her pit bull in this massive, like cavernous loft. And of course. She's like, you know, then she meets the boss and they have this romance. And it's like uh, he like he finds out where she lives because he has her social security number. And like it's all presented as this like totally beautiful and plausible thing. And like it's, you know, this romantic wonderful thing but I think that for me seeing that as a kid it was like wow she gets to she actually does get to go do this job and then dance and when she dances no one heckles her either and everyone just like applauds her performance art thinks she's so talented looks great with the with the cutoff sweatshirt <laughs> yeah like so talented such a good eye mm-hmm. you know makes a lot of money as a steel worker lives in her loft no one ever chased her down the street or made a weird comment 
And then, you know, she just gets to live like she's some sort of Byronic hero. She gets to live like she's a rock star. And you never saw that. She doesn't have girl problems. She doesn't have any girl problems, yeah. Do you feel like that was an accident, or do you feel like that was something that the people who made that movie set out to do? I think kind of neither. I mean, I do think that it was sort of like um, they set out to make something very um, kind of blockbustery and fantasy-based, you know? Like, it was a sort of 80s... It was that shift in the 80s where we weren't really talking about people in the world anymore. And you know what I mean? Because if no, you had made, mean. well, like one interesting comparison I read between Flashdance and another, the other film I've seen it compared to is Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. And how Saturday Night Fever is also about a working class person. And he, you know, the, going dancing is like the moment where he gets to sort of be free and express himself, but it doesn't change the fact that his life is what it is. And the whole movie is sort of about like his life is kind of shitty. Right. But he gets to escape into this thing. He finds transcendence on the dance floor. Exactly. Whereas in Flashdance, there's no admission that her life is shitty. Mm -hmm. There's no, nobody says, oh, look, like actually she has a steel working job. Like that's a union job. They were really disappearing by then. Like she would have never gotten that job. Uh, people there was issues around if that's the least realistic thing about Flashdance I'd be surprised yes no you're right but I'm just saying it's like it's not about a person in the world anymore it's about a fantasy and so it was a a music video right but but, but aren't aren't most movies like uh, I want to talk in the time that remains to us um, the the book kind of moves chronologically through Mm -hmm. a lot of things in Hollywood um, but I want to make sure we get to her Mm-hmm. Which I saw uh, and I enjoyed, and and I mean I think I can kind of guess. I didn't make it that far in your book. I think I can kind of guess. <laughs> you have this disembodied robot that is talking to a fully formed man. Is that about the her? Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I loved her. Uh huh. I did too. I mean, um, well, what 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 do you? I'm okay, trying... so what I'm getting at is that I I feel like women are very often fantasy abstractions in movies, but uh-huh. I feel like men are very often fantasy abstractions in movies. I did not see a whole lot about the Joaquin Phoenix character that related to my life in any real way, or even really, only in the in the most general sense did I have anything symbolically in common uh-huh. with his situation in life. These are made up. I don't know if they're archetypes, but these are figments. These are, what if a guy was kind of like this and this is the situation he found himself in? Right. He did not feel particularly three-dimensional to me either. No. I mean, he, well, I I thought he was, you know, kind of an everyman character, just a guy with a job and who'd had a bad breakup and was lonely. And then he gets his operating system and um she sounds great and but she is, she is really a disembodied fantasy um and she's artificial it's she's an artificial intelligence so he's um he is creating her mm-hmm. so she is a story that he creates that really fits his own fantasies and his needs you know like she's he's feeding he's inputting into this operating system his right. perfect yeah Voice in his ear. Okay, so oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So that's what he gets. And but the funny thing about it, the the the, the switch is that she's an artificial intelligence, so she quickly surpasses him and moves beyond him and mm-hmm. leaves. Um, but I thought it was fascinating, like in terms of how um, it was a good it was a good metaphor for how you know 
detective stories like create these fantasy women. Right. So it's very similar to Mannequin. I mean, they literally create yes. the perfect woman and they, you know, put a bunch of car and driver magazines and Playboy magazines mm-hmm. and, and they come up with, with a woman. But in each instance, the ultimate message of the movie is that even if you could create the perfect woman in a Petri dish, it would never work out because that's not the way life works. You're actually better off dealing with a real human relationship where there is give and take warts and all. Right. Yeah, I mean that's why Frankenstein was Frankenstein was written by a woman, mm-hmm. and and you know it uh, it has some of that experience in it of like the the creation that escapes the the creator, and the, there's the sort of the the tension between you know the creation and and like the what a human being would be like. So we have about five minutes left, and I have a bunch of topics that I wanted to try to hit on. You tell me what you are most interested in talking about. Um, this is just stuff I frankly pulled out of the, the press release for your book, uh, Philadelphia Story, Bugs Bunny, Playboy Bunnies. What's so bad about Bugs Bunny? Oh, nothing. I love Bugs Bunny. I mean, I um, I, I think what I was write, I was writing about how I had a huge crush on Bugs Bunny as a kid. He was like the first sort of... Um, character that I had a crush on but then I also like my first experience with like thinking understanding sexiness was Bugs Bunny in drag and how he was both and how he taught me that like girls were sex like girls were sex and that was confusing for a heterosexual girl yeah I guess yeah Bugs Bunny in drag did not have a whole lot of depth (laughs) Well, he, he, he was interesting. I mean, he, he, you know, he, he, he used his sexuality or whatever, but it was, it was a comp, it was a, it was an interesting flip, um, on the character. And what, what, what about the Philadelphia story? As someone who I have a poster of the Philadelphia story in my oh, really? living room. Um, I mean, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, well, that it's just so fascinating. I mean, the whole thing is framed as a story. I mean, I never really understood why it was called the Philadelphia story, but it's about a tabloid story. Yes. And it's about how she's going to be framed by this tabloid mm-hmm. and how she's portrayed as this the Ice Queen society girl and she's trying to show that she's a human, but every man in the movie is telling her, "No, you're a statue, you're a goddess, you're an ice queen, you're a bitch, you're whatever." And um it's it's just interesting like she's in this constant sort of dialogue with with her father and James Stewart and Cary Grant about they're telling her what she is and what she isn't the whole thing is her argument but the fascinating thing about that movie is that that was um, Catherine Hepburn's own personal reply to how she had been um, how she had been portrayed both in films and in Hollywood by the press box office poison yes Mm-hmm. And and also just someone that no one wanted to see. No one wanted to see her being so righteous and noble all the time and that everyone was really tired of that. And, yeah. Um, and so she had to make a movie where she got – literally got knocked down. Like Cary Grant literally like pushes her in the face and she topples backwards like off her pedestal. People wanted to see her get her comeuppance. Yeah. And so she did that. Um, she And she did that to get her career back. And, and she did. Mm-hmm. And, um, but in her life, she wasn't that person. 
No, she wasn't. She was the other woman for for decades, right? Mm-hmm. Well, well, I don't even know if she was necessarily just the other woman. I mean, I think she had other relationships, and I'm thinking you know, of the Spencer yeah, Tracy. Wasn't but, he? Wasn't he married for yeah, forever? Yeah, he was. Yeah, but 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 I think they, you know, I don't know what's true and what isn't. But like, I think they both had other relationships, and okay. um, you know, she was just independent. She 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 was just she never. She played that role in a movie so that she didn't have to really play it in her in her life in the end. Is that it or is it maybe that she was – that was the aspirational side of her. That was what she wanted to be and maybe she wanted to be that because she knew that she actually wasn't that modern or liberated or whatever the heck she thought she wanted. She wrote a lot about – or she talked a lot about that movie mm-hmm. um, and about how um, she – it was her way of like – reclaiming her career and giving you know sort of kowtowing to this idea of what she should do but but she never um I mean this you know she never wanted to she was married once young and got divorced she didn't want children I mean she just wanted to be an actress and finally um we have a couple of minutes left uh, train wreck, which seems like a good place to leave off because that is the most recent super successful female driven movie. What do you make of train wreck and what does it say about the state of all the things that your book is about? Um, I guess, you know, I really, I'm a huge fan of Amy Schumer. I think she's so funny. And I think that like her show is, um, often so funny because she really gets at these experiences from, of, of being a woman, like from this such a specific first-hand way that she really gets it. Um, and I think that Trainwreck just suffered from a lot of the same um, formula problems um, where they had to sort of, you know, they presented a, a girl who was like, whatever, too wild, too this, too that, and then in order to, like, marry this sports surgeon, she has to calm down. And, you know, I don't know. Like, well, what, what other option did she have? You know, sleeping around and getting drunk all the time wasn't going to work out for her. Bill Hader wasn't going to allow her to continue to dabble in that on the side. At a certain point, yeah, you got to. That's sort of like not really the. That's not really the point. Okay. I think. I think it's like it's not like oh, I support her getting drunk every day and sleeping around. It's it's not about that. It's just like the, what the story was saying was you know, this this woman is a train wreck until she like stops doing this stuff she was a train wreck arthur was a train wreck too yeah until he i don't know if you ever quit drinking but he at least he at least dialed it back a little bit i don't know was she a train wreck though she just like he was she was um i thought she was uh kind of getting promoted at work and like oh you're right she wasn't like a mess arthur needed a butler to like you know, get him dressed in the morning. Yeah, that's true. Arthur was probably a bigger train wreck than her. <laughs> well, I think that's all the time we have. Um, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. Um, Karina Chocano, you are at Karina underscore Chocano on Twitter. And your book, You Play the Girl on Playboy Bunnies, Stepford Wives, Train Wrecks, and Other Mixed Messages is available now. Best of luck with that. Thank you. 